Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode 354 of Her, the podcast where you'll hear the naked truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, her cravings. Yeah, her cravings. Hmm, maybe even the end to her cravings as it relates to food. Well, we're going to find out. We have a fantastic show coming up. Before we begin, just know that this episode is made possible by our wonderful friends at Smarty Pants Women's Vitamins, the delicious once-a-day gummies that contain all of the essential vitamins, minerals, and omega oils customized just for women. To learn more, Hop on over to SmartyPantsVitamins.com. And here's your first reminder to click on the iTunes after this episode to rate and review the show. Why? Because I love hearing from you. That's why your feedback is just platinum. All right, it's time for Her. Her, the podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind. Her body. Her life. It's all about Her. Raise your hand if you have cravings with regard to food. Okay, just like what I thought. (laughs) Everybody and his mother, absolutely. How about trying to understand more about cravings? So we have author Mark Schatzker um, on who is going to be talking about his book, The End of Craving, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well. So he is the author of this book and also The Dorito Effect and Steak. He is a writer in residence at the Modern Diet and Physiology Research Center affiliated with Yale University. And you might have read his reading in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Best American Travel Writing, and the Annual Review of Psychology. And he lives in one of my most favorite places, Toronto. I love Canada. Oh my gosh, any excuse to get up there. What can I say? Mark, welcome to the Herb Podcast. Well, what a terrific welcome. Thank you so much for having me. All right. What's up with this book? Why did you write it? Well, because I'm so interested in our conflicted relationship with food. Uh, There's something that seems profoundly unnatural about it. That um, You know, food is meant to nourish us, but it seems to have become almost like a poison. And I think there's something dreadfully wrong with the situation, with the status quo, with our approach, with what we've come to believe about food. And I wanted to you know, dig more deeply into it and and get a better understanding of exactly what's going on. Okay, so you wrote The Dorito Effect. Um, I remember when that book first came out, and then you've written that, this this wonderful book here. So I'm, I'm sitting back sort of laughing to a certain degree. We use this word food. You know, so much of what people are eating today, and I've written a number of books about this, um, are really what I would consider to be science fair projects. Um, I, I don't even know if I'd grace them, uh, these these products with the word food and nourishing and, and all of that good stuff. It's ultra process science fair projects. Um, and so as you were writing this book, how did you, how did you address that? Um, that's a great question because I feel like, I agree with you. And one of the things I became particularly aware of is that this is very much of a cultural bent that, that we, 
we have a suspicion of food here in North America. We think there's something wrong with it, that it needs to be improved. Um, we also take a very cynical view of our own inclinations and urges, and we think that we have to repress them. There's that statement, you know, if it tastes good, spit it out. And these are two things I became particularly interested in. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'll talk about two different countries. Uh, and I opened the book talking about epidemic. You know, we're going through an epidemic right now, too. In fact, we're dealing with COVID, but we're also dealing with obesity. And in some ways, obesity is more interesting because we know less about it. We've been fighting it for so long. And I became interested in an epidemic that um, two countries were struggling with, two regions of the world, northern Italy and the southern U.S. And this epidemic was called pellagra. And it meant in an Italian dialect, rough skin. And that's how it started. People would get these skin scales. And then it would progress. They would get uh, diarrhea. They would lose their appetite. They would get delirious. And then they would die. And nobody had any idea what was causing this. And there was, just like we have with obesity, there was this rotating cast of experts that all had, you know, they all had the right answer. Some of them thought it had to do with, you know, how far you lived from a river. Some thought it was caused by mosquitoes. Some said it was an infectious disease. We eventually learned that the cause had to do with diet. And eventually we learned it was a nutritional deficiency of niacin or vitamin B3. And this experience, this epidemic of pellagra did a lot to shape our understanding of what we call micronutrition, which is to say there's elements in food that are necessary for the continuation of life. But here's where things get really interesting, is how these two cultures dealt with it. Um, America did what we probably would think is sensible. We identified a needed element in the diet and we said, well, some people aren't getting it, so let's put it in food. So we began enriching or fortifying flour. In the early 1940s, we passed a bunch of laws that encouraged, essentially made law, the enrichment of flour. We added niacin, we added riboflavin and thiamine, two other B vitamins, and iron, the mineral. Um, and it worked, it worked incredibly well. Uh, Pellagra, like, poof, it was gone almost overnight. Uh, and it, it looks, you know, looking back, what a great marriage of cutting-edge science and public policy. Here's where things get interesting, though. You look over to Italy and what they did, and it seems almost medieval, almost laughable. They didn't, you know, embrace science and start adding vitamins to their polenta and to their pasta. Um, what they did almost sounds like, you know, some kind of medieval rube was, was in charge of policy. They said poor people should raise rabbits because rabbits are a cheap form of meat. And they said we should have communal bread ovens. And some people even said people with pellagra should drink wine, which I mean, you're just like, what wine? Someone's, you know, has a nutritional deficiency and you suggest wine. It actually wasn't a bad suggestion though, because the wines back then were not not very filtered as they are now. And they had a lot of yeast in them. And yeast is a great source of niacin. Now, let's look at what happened, because Italy also vanquished pellagra. It took longer, but they literally ate their way out of a nutritional deficiency. Well, fast forward the clock over a century, and look at these two cultures now. The American South was once the pellagra belt, now it is the diabetes belt, or the obesity belt. Northern Italy, on the other hand, is an Alice in Wonderland, upside-down world where nothing makes sense according to so much of what we think about diet and nutrition. Um, they do not eat a Mediterranean diet in northern Italy. I became particularly interested with a, a city called Bologna. That's where we get the luncheon meat Bologna or Bologna from. Over there, they call it mortadella, and it's got these big cubes of white fat. So they're not afraid of fat. They love cheese. They love butter. They love olive oil. They're also not afraid of carbs. They love pasta. They love bread. 
they eat pizza. They seem, on the surface, to be absolutely food-obsessed. At the Chamber of Commerce in Bologna, they have a series of recipes, the official recipes. If you're going to make these traditional dishes, you must do it this way. It's like the Ten Commandments for recipes. Their favorite noodle is called a tagliatella. It looks like a fettuccine. It's wider than spaghetti. It's made with eggs. And they have one cast in gold. This is the perfect noodle. These people are obsessed with pasta. We have been fighting a war against pasta and bread and fat. Uh, all the things we've been resisting, they have been embracing. Well, you'd think if, if all these you know, fats and carbs and, and deliciousness was our true mortal enemy, you'd expect the residents of Bologna would be the absolute thinnest in the world. Or thick, pardon me, plumpest. But they are among the thinnest. The rate of obesity there is less than 8%. Whereas you look over at the United States, it's, Whoa. it's 42%. Whoa. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. Well, actually... By twenty by twenty thirty, if if we keep trending the way we do, and the pandemic certainly did not help, um, we should be majority, meaning um, greater than fifty percent um, obese, not just overweight. We're already majority overweight yes, in the United States for adults, but oh my God, the obesity and back and forth. So one of the things you're bringing up here is. How does one get so far off track well, and, and, as to become a, a culture that becomes obese? So go to that place. Well, this is where things become so interesting, because look at the two differences in the culture. We looked at food and putting on our white lab coats and our scientific hats, we said, aha, food is imperfect. We know about vitamins and some foods don't have them. So we're going to fix what's wrong with food. And it, that's not where it ended. That's where it started. And we've been doing so many things to food to change it because, you know, we think almost there's something primitive and stupid about food. So we had artificial sweeteners and fat replacers and fake flavors. We have been continually changing food and modifying it and altering it and thinking nothing of it. Look at what the Italians did. They didn't say think food was the problem. They thought food was the cure. To them, it was obvious. Pelagra's caused by poverty, and these poor farmers need access to better food. They didn't become frightened of it. They didn't wince when they crack an egg or uh, put some butter on a piece of bread. They embraced the experience of eating while we shrink in fear of it. And I think that has done so much to shape our culture of food, not just all the junk we dump into it, but even our own attitude. You know, I, grew, I was born in 1973. I remember all these foods that we've been taught to be afraid of, but you, you kind of wince it doesn't matter what you look at in the grocery aisle. At some point, someone has said, that's poison. So we all live in a kind of fear of food. And I think we have this very arrogant idea that we can make it better. And I would say that nature perfected food. And that's what we should be eating is what nature produces. I, I love it. Okay. You know, kind of uh, going back to that whole foods, lots of plants, uh, lean uh, forms of protein and all the rest of it. That's all great. Now let's look around us. Where is it? Um, <laughs> you know, so we have, we, we live literally in a food or well, basically an ultra process food product, um, landmine, uh, field. So we've, we've got all of this uber blissful, um, uh, tasty, uh, product that's available to us 24-7, um, some of it fairly cheap. Um, how do we then 
help people get out of that habit of defaulting to eating and consuming that type of stuff and, and get back into natural food? Well, I think we have to understand what this food is doing to our brain. And one thing I would push back a little bit on is this idea that processed food is blissful. I don't think it's blissful. I think, I mean, we've all gone into that thing where you start to eat the bag of chips and you can't stop. And there's something going on there with your brain, but I wouldn't call that bliss. I would never include amongst the best foods I've ever eaten a candy bar or a bag of chips or a fast food cheeseburger or a lousy slice of pizza. People certainly eat these things. But are they the high point of our culinary life? They don't come anywhere close. And this is important because we, be, we become so allergic to pleasure that we regard anything enjoyable as dangerous. And what's in fact taking place is more subtle. So here's something important is when you look at the neuroscience of obesity, most people would expect if you look at the brains of people with obesity, that they're going to suffer from an excess of pleasure. And that's not what we see. So if you think about a milkshake and think about two brains, someone with obesity versus somebody who's trim, most people think, boy, when that person with obesity, you know, takes a sip of that milkshake, their brain is just going to light up like a Christmas tree. That's not what happens. If anything, their experience of the pleasure of the milkshake is blunted. They experience less pleasure. What do they experience more of? Desire. It's when they see that milkshake, they get this spike of desire. They are consumed by a craving for it, they want to drink it much more than the person who is trim. So this tells us something important. Something has happened to the, our brains to make us want to consume high-calorie foods. So are we consuming a lot of high-calorie foods? Absolutely. Are they blissful? I wouldn't say so. I would say it's more like they have a grip on us that we can't seem to resist them, and we get into this well, let me. Them. Well, let me let me clarify something. I was actually saying that sarcastically. Um, I didn't mean that they were truly blissful. I was no, also a lot, doing a lot a of people say that though. I, look, I know you're, you you no. you have a grasp of, of of food, but we hear this a lot that people say, "Oh, junk food. It's like heroin. It's and um, it, it's it's blissful and it's incredibly delicious." I see a lot of scientists who say this, and I think they haven't really taken a good look at how good real food can actually be. No, there's no question about that. I think this also um, teases back to work that was done in laboratories um, by the big food manufacturers um, to be able to determine what they call the bliss point is. In other words, um, how can they craft a particular food uh, to be able to ignite, as it were, um, a, uh, a bliss point. The bliss point is nothing more than um, a trigger in the reward center of the brain so that, you know, if I have a crisp, wonderful apple, I will always remember that and I will think of it in terms of a delicious, fabulous, um, very attractive food to be able to, you know, grab uh, if I see it again, because I already had one great experience. But when it comes to these other kinds of foods, the chips and the rest of it and back and forth, there seems to be um, a need to create a food that will kind of hit that reward center in the brain at a higher level 
of attractiveness, um, even though it truly isn't, to your point. It's just more of a biochemical reaction than anything else. And so I think a lot of attention was given to that for years and still is by the food manufacturers. But to your point, you know, um, people truly feel a much more natural attraction and inclination to eat natural foods um, at the baseline. That's truly what they want. If you take anybody out there who's just taken a nice long hike, you know, and, and they're, they're in nature and they feel really good, the last thing on their mind when they finish that hike is to eat a mountain of, you know, cheap candy bars. What they would, and, and we've seen this in research, what they tend to want to eat are natural foods like, oh man, I love that apple or that peach or, you know, whatever may be available because it is nature to nature for all intent and purposes. It's just, you know, making that kind of food more available to people and to teach them to be able to do more things like cook rather than grab large cartons and bags of, of more, as it were, processed foods um, because they happen to be there and they're, and I quote, okay, but they're really not natural foods. What do you think of that? Well, I'll put it to you this way. I think, I think we get confused with the term like bliss point because there's more going on in the brain when it comes to pleasure. And there's some really interesting science on in this. So I would say that a lot of these processed foods, they don't actually tickle the bliss point. What they do is they engage this, this reinforcement um, area in the brain and they make us reach for more. It, so, you know, when you put the Dorito in your mouth, this isn't some immersive epiphany of joy. The first thought that goes to your head is, I want another. That's not true pleasure. And there's some fantastic science in this. Um, and it goes back to a, a neurochemical you probably heard of called dopamine. Um, this has sort of made its way into the public discourse. And most people think wrongly that dopamine equals pleasure. This is what the scientists thought for a long time. They thought that dopamine equals pleasure. And I wrote about the work of a guy named Kent Barrage, who at one time also thought that. And he tried to you know, lay on more evidence for that. But then things went sideways. And this really opened up our understanding of the neuroscience of pleasure. So what he did is he took some rats and he gave them a drug to reduce the amount of dopamine in their brain, this pleasure chemical. And he gave them some sugar water because rats love sugar water. And he was expecting that they wouldn't like it because dopamine's gone. How could they enjoy something without dopamine? And yet the rats enjoyed it. And he thought, that doesn't make sense. What's going on? So he lesioned their brains. He just wiped out the brain cells that have this dopamine, and, and now they got none. They're like catatonic. He fires sugar water in their mouth, and there they go again. They're licking their paws. They're sticking their tongues out. These joyful little responses. He's going, what the heck? That makes no sense. So now he did reverse. Of course, he cranks up dopamine in their brain, and now the rats are gorging. They're just stuffing their faces. So you think, okay, this is making dopamine look like pleasure. Not so fast. Because their facial expressions say, I don't like this. They're, they're making this gape expression, which is like a yuck expression. More evidence drifts in from humans. Um, dopamine isn't involved just in the reward system. It's involved in movement. And Parkinson's disease is an underproduction of dopamine. So they would give Parkinson's patients drugs that boost dopamine. Well, it also boosts dopamine in the reward center. Well, what do these patients start to do? The most crazy things they would start to... Uh, 
buy scratch cards. They spend all their money on slot machines. They start to binge watch pornography or visit prostitutes. But they all say, I didn't like doing it. I felt compelled to do it, but I didn't actually enjoy it. So after a great deal of research, Kent Derridge puts the pieces of the puzzle together and he realizes that what we call pleasure or reward is in fact two distinct things. There's the dopamine system and that is motivation. That's wanting, that's desire. That's what draws us towards the things in the world that we need. But then when we experience these objects of desire, that is the pleasure impact moment. That is what he calls liking. And that is mediated by opioid neurotransmitters. It's a totally different feeling. So I would say to you, these foods that you and I cherish so much, a a great peach, a wonderful apple, an incredible tomato, that's tickling this opioid network. That's the kind of pleasure where it slows life down and you say, ah, that is wonderful. But so much of the junk food we eat, it doesn't give us that experience. It just makes you shove more food in your mouth. And in fact, I visited a clinic in Germany that has developed what's called hedonic therapy. This is pleasure therapy by a leading scientist. And I went through a therapy that really brought these two neural systems to light. And I want to tell you about that experience because I think it will help people understand their own experiences of food. So the first thing we did, the scientist's name was Anya Hilbert. She sat me down and she gave me a bag of potato chips and she said, open it. And she, she said, listen to the pop that the bag makes. I want you to smell that whoosh of aroma. And then she, I took up two chips and she said, just hold them in your hands. She wouldn't let me eat them. I could sniff them. I could just nibble them a tiny bit. And she said, you can rub them together. And I thought, well, that's a strange thing to do, but I did. And it was just amazing. I was absolutely seized by desire. I wanted to eat these chips so badly. I was just tense and on edge and thinking, I want these chips. Well, then she said, throw them out and do it again. And it was painful to throw them out. But then there were these two brand new chips in my hand, and they looked even better than the last ones. And this, this wave of, of desire just peaked, and it, it was to the point of, of pain, almost like torture. But eventually it crested, it went away, and I threw them in the garbage. And that really gave me an inkling that there are foods out there in the world that they kind of fool us into thinking that we like them, but they kind of whisper lies. They never really deliver pleasure. Well, then she gave me a food that does deliver pleasure. She gave me a little square of dark chocolate. And she said, let the heat of your body melt this. And that's what I did. And what a totally different experience because instead of being on edge and excited and instead of everything being sped up, all of a sudden the world slows down and I'm suddenly the passenger and the chocolate is the guide. And it took me on this little journey. And I got so much reward and enjoyment from this tiny little piece of chocolate. And here's what's so interesting is that this scientist uses fine chocolate with her patients that have binge eating disorder. When they are absolutely overcome by a desire to stuff themselves full of food, literally stuff themselves to the point of stomach pain, they will take a very fine Belgian chocolate and enjoy it. And it can pack so much pleasure that it will extinguish this volcano of desire. And I wish to heck that the grand majority of people out there understood that that they really were able to distinguish between that unbelievable, you know, a deliciousness of the Belgian chocolate um, and the strange pull of the, and I quote, liking experience of the other stuff, one way or the other. So let me ask you a question. You know, is there any hope? 
Yeah. You and I just talked about some draconian, you know, statistics here. Most people out there in the Herb podcast land are probably saying, what? What do you mean? You know, it's already 42%. Soon it's going to be majority obesity, not even overweight. We're already there. Um, so what? where's the hope come from? Well, I would say the hope comes from Northern Italy, um, which is just to say we know there's people out there that eat wonderful, real food. Um, and they don't, they don't live in fear of it. They enjoy it. It nourishes them and they are trim. So it is very possible to have your cake and eat it too. Um, so that tells us it's possible. What it also tells us is we're probably doing something really wrong. And I think so much of it has to do with our alienation of nature. So much of the ways we've altered food. You know, one thing I became really interested in is how is it that our brains get tweaked on this? You know, we see these spikes of desire and it turns out so much of it turns out that our brains are so intelligent. You know, we think that the stomach is kind of like this unfillable pit and that the appetite was formed in the Stone Age and, and it's just sort of this ogre that just wants to stuff itself. It's not true. Um, the, the brain controls your body weight so that when a lot of people diet, they, they get hungry and tired because their brain's trying to notch them back to their set point. But also when they do overfeeding studies, people don't like to be overfed. So the brain has a kind of a Goldilocks zone of what it wants to weigh. And we've altered that in some way. And it gets back to this alteration of food because not only does the brain um, control your body weight, your brain is constantly measuring the food that you eat. When you taste food, we think of that as you know flavor, taste, desire, enjoy, but your brain is measuring it. If something's sweet or it tastes like it's got some fat in it or, or um, it, it tastes fruity, the brain associates that with nutrients. Well, your brain also analyzes food once it's in the stomach, once it's getting metabolized, and it matches these things up. So let's think about what we did to food. Let's take something like sweetness. For the entire existence of our species, up until just a handful of decades ago, sweetness always meant calories. So if you pick that peach or that apple in the forest, you might have had to fight to get it. You might have had to climb a tree. You, there might be competition. There might be a big cat that wants to eat you. But once you got that fruit, it didn't tell you a lie. The sweetness equaled calories. Well, what have we done to sweetness now? We've got artificial sweeteners. We've got stevia. We've got sugar alcohols. We've got allosteric modifiers, all sorts of things that are put into food that evoke the sensation of sweetness with no calories. Well, if it turns out your brain's a, a Stone Age moron, that's a great idea. Just fool that idiot. Make it think it's getting sweetness, but secretly, you know, pull the rug out from underneath it and don't give it the calories. What if your brain's really smart and it matches up these two things and it goes, you know, on Monday I had sweetness and I got calories. Then on Tuesday I got sweetness, no calories. What does that do? Well, psychologists would say that causes an uncertainty response. Uh, the more technical term is a reward prediction error. It's expecting a reward that it does not get. How does the brain respond to that? With elevated motivation. Why? Because the brain doesn't like getting ripped off. And in evolution, if you suffered a loss, if you didn't get what you thought you were going to get, you might die. That's a bad thing. So it became baked into our genes in evolution that when something becomes uncertain, we respond by working extra hard to get it. Well, so much of, you know, the sensory system is really important. Um, you know, th this faculty of tasting food, it's not some frivolous pleasure that's disconnected from nutrition. It's an essential part of it. It takes up more DNA than any other bodily part. 
Well, let's look at what we did to food. We changed all the sensory properties. We have artificial sweeteners. We have fake flavors. There's a huge family of additives called fat replacers that nobody talks about. But they're in yogurt, they're in ice cream, they're in energy drinks, they're in gravies, they're in salad dressings, they're in mayonnaise, uh, they're in sandwich spreads, they're in margarine. These create the experience of fat and give you lower calories. Again, if the brain is dumb, maybe that's a good idea, but it turns out your brain is smart. And it turns out it knows what's going on and it fights extra hard to get calories. So that's what we changed. We have goaded ourselves into this excess desire to eat because we've been monkeying around with the sensory properties of food because we think we're so smart and we're not. I love it. I mean, God, what a mess. What a mess. So what, what, would, yeah. you, what would you tell someone out there who is in the Herb podcast land right now, who's 50 pounds overweight, basically obese, um, fairly sedentary <clears throat> and feeling very hopeless? What, what would be something they could do in terms of their nutrition? They already know how to get up <clears throat> and they're going to start walking at the very least out in nature or wherever, become more physically active. What about nutrition? Yeah, that's a great a question. And I met one of the patients in the lab that I visited in Germany. I talked to this woman and um, she suffered from binging disorder. She'd lost 20 pounds and she talked about forming a new relationship with food. So she would do that technique when she was overcome with the desire to eat. She would eat, you know, dark chocolate really helped her. She said, she said, the thing about dark chocolate is you can't eat it quickly. It just forces you to slow down. Um, she learned to find joy in new food. So one of her favorite things to eat was plain yogurt with fruit because she loved kind of the tart tang of the yogurt. Then you get this little burst of sweetness when you crunched into the fruit. And she said over time, you know, she still had cravings for the old foods, but they said they were getting diminished. And she said she saw, she saw them for what they were. That cake was always kind of whispering promises that it never really delivered on. So what I just say to people is that this isn't an easy thing that you can fix with a snap of the fingers, some miracle diet. It took us a long way and a long time to get to where things are. So it's, it's going to be a long climb out. But I think if you look at trying to form a natural relationship with food, enjoy it. Um, I think, you know, we're not really good at counting calories, but if we're going to play that game, make the calories count for pleasure. Make, make that a really delicious meal. When, when I, uh, the few times like if I'm stuck in an airport and I eat a fast food meal, what I find so interesting is like, wow, I just ate 1,200 calories in seven minutes. It goes down really quickly. You don't enjoy it. Um, it's like it goes right through you. Whereas I can eat a high-calorie meal at home, a festive dinner on a Saturday night with my wife, a glass of wine. We'll have dessert. Well, you know, that's a high-calorie meal. It takes, you know, 10 times as long. And I'm not hungry the next morning because that's had a meaningful impact on my body. I would also say, stop trying to do all these things to food, to fool your brain, the artificial sweeteners, the fat replacers, like this, diet that. Eat real food. It's more satisfying. Um, and try to become more in tune with, you know, with the properties that food has. I, I don't think this fixes itself overnight, but I think if we can if we can stop living in fear and start to enjoy food the way it was meant to be enjoyed, that's going to get closer to an actual relationship of, of how it's meant to be, how our brain is meant to respond to the food and the environment around it. I think that the, uh, and those points are 
Excellent, excellent. I think another real key here in the in redefining the relationship with food, cooking is absolutely essential because you know I totally agree with you. Ab- I totally agree. It's just so important why you're handling it. You're you're it's a very intimate relationship. Um and to be able to uh to manipulate real food into, you know, throwing things and chopping and and cutting up and dicing and mincing and and just handling and managing real food really gives you an, an appreciation of what food actually is for crying out loud. In the best of all worlds, you go all the way and you actually grow some in your garden. And then you can kind of, you know, come full circle. I started with a seed. I now have a fill in the blank, you know, tomato plant or something. And now I'm taking those tomatoes and I'm putting them into an absolutely delicious salad or I'm cooking them or, you know, whatever the issue may be. But you now have a full appreciation of their value in your life instead of a quick something something just to your point how fast you can just down some you know uh, fast food um, and how long it takes to actually sit down and cook it means it has to be a priority in your life and it isn't in so many people's lives they're running around and you know uh, multitasking and, and god knows what else it becomes if anything you know um something that is uh, secondary, tertiary. If anything, it may even be irrelevant in their life. Well, the other thing, too, is, is you can get really good at making food taste great, particularly vegetables. It's hard to get good vegetables out there in the world. Very few restaurants do a good job. And the interesting thing, this is another thing we can take from Italians, is they often have the green part of the meal at the beginning. So I find with my kids, for example, I love to do roasted cauliflower, roasted broccoli. I do that first, and we graze on that as I'm cooking the rest of the meal. Everybody eats their vegetables. Everybody loves it. So there's also little tricks like that. Because when you're at your hungriest, that, that roasted cauliflower broccoli tastes just incredible. And you can, you can start to develop like an arsenal of recipes you know that you love for the foods that you should eat. So many restaurants, they take the easy way out. They, they, they're not spending a lot of money on ingredients, and they're just, they're just drowning it in, in oil or, or sugar or whatever doing the, the least amount of work possible to make you eat it. And that's not in your best interest. So there's so many reasons that, you know, when you, when you cook, you're, you're empowering yourself to, to be in charge of what gets into your body. I love it. And, and that's it. This is all about, about empowerment per se. And that is taking control. You're in control. God knows what you're getting when you're, you know, going to a food court or, you know, something else. Really seriously, who the heck knows? But so much easier and so much better when you're able to control it. So this is fabulous. There was a um, a piece you wrote here that I thought was lovely. And that is at the very end of your book, which I just thought was beautiful. Perhaps eating is best thought of as a performance of life itself. It is one of the best performances there is. Nature didn't create it to fool us or to kill us, but to thrill us. Yet every one of us ends up seeing a different show. I thought of those laborers in uh, Karnak, how do you say that? Karnataka. 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 Sucking... (laughs) 
that there it is, uh, Karnataka sucking on Tamarin, the Irish prisoner basking in the brutal rhapsody of six oranges, Enzo, the bean farmer, that Christmas Eve dinner Anja Hilbert ate in Normandy, and the men who dress in saffron-colored robes to honor the pasta dumpling they love. Enjoyment, rapture, liking, it goes by many names. It is like a God, invisible, pure, and heavenly. It is the true object of all desires, and it sits waiting for you at the end of every mystery. Whoa! Now that was well done. I mean, seriously, oh. Mark, that was beautiful. Really well done. Oh, thank you. No, That's seriously. Kind of Thanks so much. No, I, I love it. So everyone out there, we've been talking to Mark Schatzker. He is the author of The End of Craving, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well. Please run on over to his website, and that is Mark Schatzker, and that's spelled S-C-H-A-T-Z-K-E-R.com. That's markshatsker.com. And you can also tweet him um, on the handle Mark Schatzker with a capital M, capital S. And, and honestly, Mark, thank you so much because you've really enlightened so many of us about all things cravings. Thank you very much for being on the Herb Podcast. Well, it was a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And everyone out there now run on over to iTunes, rate and review the show. I'm waiting to hear from you because I'm Dr. Pam Peek, host of the Her Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Pam Peek MD or Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek. And remember to catch every single episode of the Her Podcast on iTunes, Radio MD, and all the usual platforms. We're all over the place. Thanks so much for listening today. Stay safe and stay well.